Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey, everybody. Uh, we've got a great one for a change. Uh, Alex Gibney is uh, my guest. He is an Oscar-winning uh, documentary uh, filmmaker, also Emmy-winning, and, and we learn in this Grammy-winning, which he didn't deserve. Uh, but we'll get into that later. He's made these great documentaries, uh, Smartest Guys in the Room on Enron. He's made really well-done one on Scientology. And, and the reason I'm doing this one today is called Citizen K is his movie. And it's about this oligarch who defied Putin. And Putin put him in prison for 10 years. This is a guy who was maybe the richest guy, the richest oligarch in Russia. He defies Putin and goes to Siberia for 10 years. And he kind of knew he was going there. And he went there out of a sense of honor. I wouldn't do that. Would you ask yourself? Of course you wouldn't. And what it is, it's a cautionary tale because this documentary, Citizen K, it starts, you know, with Gorbachev uh, and Glasnost, and then it goes to Yeltsin. And that transition, as the Soviet Union fell apart and became Russia, there was actually hope that this would become a democracy and a capitalist democracy. What happened, though, is not that, but it didn't have to go that way, and it did. I mean, there are reasons it did. They did not know capitalism, and that's where the oligarchs kind of came in and captured the oil industry, captured all this incredible wealth, and did it really in a shady way, and it was a rough period, but Yeltsin, at first, it was about not going back to autocratic society that had been. But eventually he, he flipped uh, because the oligarchs kind of bailed him out when he was unpopular. And uh, it went the way that it's gone, and Putin comes in, and Putin is Putin, a, a terrible, terrible dictator who puts his enemies in prison or kills them. And I say it's a cautionary tale because after the acquittal uh, of President Trump, you remember Susan Collins saying, you know, he learned his lesson. His lesson was 
these Republicans will let him get away with anything. And if, if he wins this presidential election, we will not recognize this country. He's already been interfering in the Justice Department, in our intelligence. This is very, very frightening. It is so absolutely necessary that we defeat this guy coming this fall, that we unite behind whoever our nominee is, whoever it is. We have to. We just have to. We have to. You hear me, everybody? Just remember, it's our nominee or Trump. Just think about that. You may not like single payer with no insurance. If Bernie's a nominee, you back Bernie. You may love single payer, no insurance, and you don't like Biden. You got to back Biden. This is a cautionary tale about Russia and how there was a moment where we could have a partner in the world. And we now, I guess, if you're Donald Trump, you have a partner <laughs> in, in Vladimir Putin and in, I guess, Erdogan and Kim Jong-un and Xi the autocrats of the world and dictators, we, we don't want our democracy to disappear. We've got to beat this psychopath so we don't end up like the Russia that Alex Gibney describes in this interview and described in his documentary. I hope you enjoy this a really weird tale. Alex Gibney, Oscar winner. You're an Oscar winning. Are you an Emmy winning? Uh, I, I am. I have documentarian. I am. I've even won a Grammy, even though I'm completely tone deaf. You won a Grammy for voicing something? No, no, no. We, we, it was a compilation. Uh, album, a compilation CD back in the day when they had CDs, and uh, for a, a series I did called The Blues with Martin Scorsese. Ah, well, that, that doesn't count. Today we're going to be talking about uh, Citizen K, which is a fascinating look at an oligarch in Russia who is an unusual oligarch. Is that fair to say? Fair to say. He's not the kind of hookers and blow oligarch. He went a different direction. Okay, his name? Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Khodorkovsky. Yeah, the K is soft. But the first K is a Khodorkovsky? It's kind of a Khodorkovsky, yeah. But not Jewish. His dad is Jewish. Ha-ha. 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 Okay. I knew it because I, I was looking at him, and he was really smart. Right. <laughs> But, okay, uh, Khodorkovsky. I'll get through this. I and not only that. that, let me see if I get it right. Sure. What I got out of this is this is a very unusual guy who, after the Soviet Union fell apart and after Glasnost, uh, when Yeltsin, you know, basically said, let's be capitalist, made a shitload of money. Sure. Not necessarily in the most kosher way. Nope. 
And uh, then uh, when uh, Putin got the power, he just kind of, he and Putin didn't hit it off. Is that fair? It's fair. And I think uh, not only did they not hit it off, but Khodorkovsky was also pretty ambitious. And I think Putin saw him as a rival. If you're Putin and you've got a lot of power, what do you do with your rival? Hmm, how about a Siberian prison, you know, four days from Moscow? How does that sound? He gets sentenced to 10 years, right, in, yeah. in a Siberian prison. This is, a, this is he's a billionaire. Right. He was, <laughs> he was Russia's richest man. It'd be like putting Mike Bloomberg in prison. Right. And Mike Bloomberg going like, okay, send me to prison. <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, that that's what's weird about this, because this guy sort of by choice says, okay, I have my self-respect. And basically Putin is asserting his dictatorial powers and using the justice system. Or lack thereof. Yeah, but it's I, I, the reason I'm very interested in this is that our justice system seems to be heading in the same damn direction. I agree. And basically, the sham of a justice system there, he challenges it, and he's sentenced in a show trial. Yeah, I mean, let's set the context for this, because he was, he challenges Putin publicly on national television. Putin decided to have a kind of national forum on corruption. And in, yes, that's right. <laughs> and instead of playing the game and just going in and saying, well, it's, corruption in general is terrible, Hodakovsky actually came with a PowerPoint presentation and basically accused Putin of corruption and noted that, you know, 40% of the country believed he was corrupt. He said that on national television. You could see Putin's you know, smoke coming out of Putin's ears. You see that. Yeah. And, yep. um, and that's not literally. No, not literally. But, but figuratively, you see. He's angry. He's angry, and you know he is the president at this point, and he's all kind of all-powerful. And I, if I were uh, Hardikovsky, if I'm him, I'm going like, I better not do this. I think I'll get out of the country with some of my money. Well, and in fact, you know, he started, it didn't just start with Hardikovsky after that famous moment. He started putting some of Hardikovsky's associates in prison. That's right. And that was kind of a clue. And everybody was advising Adakovsky, Mikhail, you got to leave the country because you're next. Okay, so let's back up. But this is a, a pivotal point <laughs> in, in the movie where he just decides to go to this corruption. And it's a show thing, right? It's, I mean, it's, it's not supposed is. to be a moment where you challenge the president and say, you, sir, are corrupt. Yeah, and he has a PowerPoint to show that right. he's corrupt. <laughs> and then he ends up in prison. Okay, so let's back up. Let's back up with this guy. The Soviet Union uh, fell. Yep. And Collapsed of its own Yeah, weight. we're talking really 1991? Yeah. Okay. At that point... This is Gorbachev is is the head of the government. The Gorbachev is stumbling out, and who comes into the fore, you know, rising up? It's Boris Yeltsin. And at we, the time, kind of a vigorous, charismatic indeed. figure. We all remember him standing on the tank. Standing on the tank. That's right. And calling out, this is a new era for Russia. This is a time of democracy. It wasn't, you know, we had moved past the era of the... Of the of, of of Soviet authoritarian control, and so now we were going to vigorously promote and support and follow a new democratic way. And of course, the Russian people 
have been the Soviet Union has existed since 1919 something like that yeah okay and they're not really used to they, they don't know what capitalism is well yeah we're talking about democracy and they're going to introduce democracy and capitalism simultaneously in capitalism they had no clue i mean actually capitalism was illegal in the soviet union you could be put in jail for uh practicing capitalism so this was a shock as grim as the soviet system was you were kind of guaranteed a living it wasn't like you were going to starve you're guaranteed kind of a crappy living right better to be guaranteed a crappy living than suddenly suddenly you find yourself on the street and if you're not resourceful or ruthless suddenly you find yourself starving and there's no option there's nobody to say okay it's all good don't worry this is where resourceful ruthless people step in correct and mikhail hodakovsky was one of those and he got a a, a grub stake early on he was in the black market game for blue jeans and computers and got a little bit of money. And, and uh, Beatles CDs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it may have been. And somehow... and The Beatles brought down the Soviet Union. Probably, yeah. Which one do you think was really the most instrumental? Oh, it was Lennon and McCartney together. Right. Lennon-McCartney. Lennon has that connection, you know, with the Soviet Union. They were not related. Oh. Lennon and Lennon. I see. So I thought they, there might have been... You think someone who had done a uh, documentary about uh, Russia and the former Soviet Union would know that, you... that John Lennon was not related at all. I never saw them in the same room at the same time. They, I don't know if they, were they alive at the same time? No, I don't, I don't think so. Oh, man. I'm just going to have to... Edit this out. Bring Well, no, I'm going to have to just bring you up to date on, or just fill you in on the documentary you did okay so uh the soviet union has fall because of the beatles blue jeans human rights uh i mean the economy just the the economy just collapsed and And they were trying to compete in the arms race right and all that all All the reasons the soviet union fell right gorbachev tried to make a transition kind of that wasn't happening he was the transitional figure but ultimately yeltsin opportunistically, you know, comes to the fore. And in the early 90s, they start to experiment radically. And they were advised by a lot of Americans, go cold turkey. It's going to be hardcore Wild West capitalism. And the way we're going to start you off is by handing out these vouchers to everybody. They handed out the vouchers that were, you know, worth about uh, 40 bucks. And you were supposed to start a business on Well, the idea was you got a piece, but they were also represented a piece of a small enterprise. So you could hang on to the voucher, and maybe the enterprise would become more valuable. And suddenly, they used to say you'll have a Volga car with one of those vouchers. So, I saw this in the documentary, and I wasn't quite sure what you were supposed to do with the voucher. Well, nobody nobody was, except for people like Mikhail Hadakovsky, because it turns he out... He starts collecting them? He well, or he's, he starts them? buying them on the cheap, and the next thing you know, he's got most of a company or and then he's got most of two companies he used to go with his employees <laughs> he'd, he'd take them in a bus outside of some of these enterprises in fact he wanted to buy a building and and the people wouldn't sell so he goes to the company uh that owned the building and he parks his employees outside in a bus and they all wait and they're buying vouchers from the employees because they didn't know what to do with them right there and then at the end of the day he owned the company and said okay now the building's mine 
Okay, <laughs> this is not something, uh, you know, that I relate to. I don't have that talent at all. Right. But he did. He did. Big time. Big time. Yeah, he knew it, and he was a very smart guy, and he figured out all the angles. Um, so, And there are a few guys like that, and they're the first oligarchs. They are. They rocket to fame and fortune mostly by playing these games. And Hodakovsky became a banker. He had to read a little handbook called, you know, how to be a banker. Yeah, how to be a banker because <laughs> they, they they didn't know. And and because and so he runs a bank, and suddenly the Soviet state is, or sorry, not the Soviet state, the Russian state is turning to him and saying, you know, how about with the big enterprises that are are still left. We let you be the banker and pay the workers. And Hodakovsky figured out that, well, actually, if the state gives me money at the first of the month and I hold it until the end of the month and invest it, instead of paying the workers on time, I can make a lot of money. So this is capitalism. This is uh, being a, a banker. Right. Exactly. So he figures that out. He figures that out. And he's and- beginning to accumulate more and more and starts getting these businesses. When does he get in the oil business? Well, the oil business comes in one of the dirtiest deals that was done, and it involves our our pal Yeltsin. We're coming back to him now because there was a period in time where Yeltsin, after being very popular and being very vibrant robust. And, and robust, you know, he starts to drink a little bit too much. Maybe he starts to drink a lot too much. And the next thing you know, he's stumbling around, he's slurring his words, and the economy is in terrible shape. And people are pissed off because they don't know how to do this capitalism stuff. And it, it, It's in terrible shape, not because he's drunk, but because they just don't know how to do capitalism. Correct. And But there are people getting rich, and a lot of them are getting murdered. Well, that was the other thing that happened. In the Wild West, uh, in the Wild West era of the 90s, people discovered that you, some people discovered you could make a lot of money by threatening to kill people. And if they didn't pay, you kill them because that gives you a little bit more market power. So there were a lot of murders in that period and not much law and order. I mean, that was the one thing that I I think the big note in terms of the 90s and then what happened with Putin is the rule of law was not that vigorous. It was a rather flexible concept. And in that period, a lot of people took the law into their own hands. It is the Wild West. Yeltsin makes this deal because he's has heart problems he's he's in terrible shape and he's got an approval rating of about three percent going into the 1996 elections now three percent it's pretty low and he's running against a guy named zuganov who is a communist who wants to take everything back to the days of the soviet union um which is a threat to the oligarchs absolutely so they make a deal with yeltsin and they basically embark on a deal that was called loans for shares and basically they loan the government or and Yeltsin, the custodian of the government, they loan Yeltsin millions and millions and millions of dollars so he can pay pensions, so he can pay you know government salaries. But they get to own the government. The, what the, they what, what they, they did own. was they said the as collateral, we want you to put up these big government enterprises and which is kind of everything. At, yeah, the big the, enterprises and the TV stations and uh, you know. Uh, Aluminum and oil, and that's where Hodakovsky gets Yukos, as part of this Yukos loans is for this shares, huge oil company. massive oil company. And so uh, Hodakovsky walks out of that loans for shares deal with Yukos. He's, and um, that's what he wanted. He wanted the oil company, which is actually the stuff that made and still makes Russia go. They have a lot of oil. They have a lot of natural gas. And a lot of it's in Siberia. Right. 
and in these wide open just expanses and he loves kind of that he, he loved that idea of pulling oil out of the ground it was power i mean it's literally power because that's how kind of why i i got interested in this film to begin with was after uh, 2016 i'm told there was russian interference in in the election and uh, i was Who interested told you that uh, lenin uh um no no he was dead by then um Nance. Nance. Malcolm Nance. Man Malcolm Nance, right. <laughs> and, and our intelligence. Yes. Professionals. Correct. And everybody. Everybody. <laughs> so Everybody who actually looked into it. So I was interested in figuring out how power worked in Russia. That's what brought me to the Hodakovsky story. And when it comes to oil, I mean, oil is literally power. So Hodakovsky becomes head of Yukos. And at one point, there are seven people who controlled 50% of the Russian economy. Now, how many of those seven oligarchs are still around as oligarchs? Uh, not many. The big three, uh, Berezovsky, Guzinski, and Hodakovsky, all ran afoul of Putin. The others kind of got the message and made accommodations. Okay. Now, Putin has uh, risen in power, and he becomes kind of a low to middle-level former KGB guy, and somehow, how does he make the transition to he, becoming Yeltsin's second guy? Well, he, he, he starts making friends with people in powerful places and convincing them that whatever the job is, he can get it done. And he becomes head of the FSB, sort of the, the internal, the, 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 the successor the KGB, to the yeah. KGB. Uh, and uh, that gives him a lot of clout and power. And then he, he sidles up to uh, one powerful oligarch, a guy named Boris Berezovsky, who recommends him to Yeltsin. And from there, he... Becomes Yeltsin's... Guy. And Yeltsin literally appoints him. He's not elected initially. On, on the eve of Y2K, literally on uh, December 31st, 1999, Yeltsin's now... We showed this in the film, sort of brutally slurring his words. Uh, says, you know, I'm 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 passing the torch to Vladimir Putin, and then within three months, um, there are elections. But he's a kind of a manufactured figure. He's a he's he's a kind of gray bureaucrat who runs into some powerful PR people who turn him into a kind of James Bond like action hero. And he loves to do that. He does, and he just consolidates his power yep. as as he goes he takes control of two tv stations critically and they become essentially nationalized tv stations that will run according to the whim of putin one of them is called fox news <laughs> yes yes and there we get into the metaphorical realm that we get to later but you know, these are the cautionary tales of this story i think in fact there's a, a comedy show that's use puppets and these puppets are remarkable oh they're great kukli it was called and you know say what you like about the 90s and how chaotic it was in russia but to yeltsin's credit he allowed a lot of freedom of the press and th these puppet shows were scathing critiques of politicians particularly uh yeltsin there's a scene you in you show some of the footage yeah they're shows. singing a drunken yeltsin singing besame mucho to sancho and Ponte. yeltsin is fine with it i guess and but the Puppets are amazing. They're These really are good. Unbelievable artists. Yeah. No, they're great. Kukli w was a wonderful, wonderful show. Putin didn't like it very much, and it didn't last too much longer after Putin came into office. Yeah, but, um, so he didn't, he didn't like satire. No, not much. They never do. They never do. Who has a sense of humor? 
Okay, so there's uh, Putin takes over and he's takes over these TV stations, and it turns out that's a big deal. It's smart. I mean, if you if what you want to do is be a propagandist, because now you control the air. How many TV stations are there? Well, they're not that many, but there were two very powerful ones, and he took them both over from these two oligarchs, Kuzinski and Berezovsky, because there was one incident. And, um, and they had no choice. No, they didn't have much choice. Okay, okay. Things are moving in one direction, which is that Putin is establishing an authoritarian state. Right. And By the way, there's one thing I should say about this TV station thing, which is one of the interesting things you know I discovered that I didn't expect. In 96, during that election, there's a moment where the liberals and one of the TV stations basically stage a kind of fake event for Yeltsin because they desperately wanted him to succeed. They did not want the communists to come back. So Yeltsin gets very sick. He's at his country house, but they need to project this image of strength. So they take all of the furniture from his Moscow office. They bring it out to his country dacha, and they kind of sit him in a chair, sort of like Charlton Heston in El Cid. And he sits there as if he's, you know, vigorous and alive. Yeah, I saw the footage. You look good. He looked good. He looked yeah. good. And they bring the furniture from his office right. to make it look like he's at his he's, office. He's at doing, his office in Moscow at work. work. Yeah. And in command. Right. And, and he makes it through that one. And, and it's totally fake. And it helps him win uh, the election. Well... That's Putin must have been looking at that and saying, hmm, that TV thing could be good for me. Like, I could just manufacture reality. Wouldn't that be good? So he's doing that. Now, uh, let's go back to our, our Khodorkovsky. 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 Hey. Uh, he... You're telling him Mr. K is a good option. Yeah, Citizen K. Let's call him Citizen K. That's the name of the movie, right? Yep. Okay, so he now is uh, deciding he's going to push up against Putin. Yep. He decides that um, one of the things he wants to do is he wants to uh, go global. And he thinks he wants to pursue a merger with Exxon. Now, when you go global, that means you have to observe certain accounting standards. You know, you, you have to begin to think internationalized. Instead of engaging in the world of crony capitalism of Russia, <laughs> uh, extreme crony capitalism of Russia, you know, he's got to apply more universal standards to his business practices. So that's what he starts to do. And he starts preaching that gospel, which is going to make him a lot of money. Putin doesn't like this idea because uh, he sees Hodakovsky as, you know, <laughs> Uh, buying influence with a lot of members of the Duma, the representative body in, in Russia. And also, he doesn't like the idea that um, Russia's natural, most precious natural resource is going to be co-owned, potentially, by uh, an American firm. So he starts... Is Tillerson there at this point? I believe Tillerson was yeah, there at yeah. that time. It's interesting, too. I, I discovered Hodakovsky knew Ken Lay. Uh, from Enron. From Enron. And you did the film on Enron. Yeah, so we had, that was an interesting... Smartest... Guys in the room. Smartest guys in the room. And that's like an Oscar-winning... It was nominated. It was the Oscar-nominated. Yep. But that, that's Ken Lay and... Uh, Jeff Skilling, those guys. Skilling. Yep. Yeah. It was a great movie and, and uh, a great story, as is this one. So he's trying to... Uh, internationalize his business. Correct. And that's a threat also to Putin. That's right. And that takes us to that moment in 2003 where there's that national televised uh, 
event on corruption and Hodakovsky, you know, attacks him frontally. And that's that, it. That's it. I so mean, he sealed his fate. When he, he sealed his fate. The big mystery still hanging over Hodakovsky is why he didn't leave. Um, and he says it, it was about respect. He wasn't going to, he wasn't going to trade his respect. And he also said it was about protecting his people. Uh, and I also think Hodakovsky thought, you know, okay, I'll do a couple of years, you know, but he wouldn't dare. I think there was a certain arrogance there because Hodakovsky was Russia's richest man. He had tremendous influence in the Duma. And this was the moment when Putin basically says, guess what? There's only one person in charge. That's me. Yep. So you're going to prison. It's an interesting show trial. And Hodakovsky does this thing where he's smiling throughout it. He's like in a cage with the other guy. Well, that's the weird part. I mean, the way a lot of the courts work in Russia, you're literally the accused. <laughs> There's not a lot of presumption of innocence when the accused is actually put in a cage. Behind bars. Behind bars, you know, in the courtroom. In the courtroom. Right. <laughs> it's like, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, how do we think about this guy? Well, this is how we think about him. Um, it's not exactly the presumption of innocence. Correct. And there were two trials. I mean, the first one, Hodakovsky tries to play it straight. It's like, this is not right. I'm, I'm, I'm innocent. And, and his lawyers make the case. Make the case. It was a tax evasion trial. The second trial, he laughs throughout it because now he realizes <laughs> this is just a joke. Because in the second trial, oh, man. they basically accuse him having already convicted him for not paying taxes on the oil he sold. They now accuse him of actually keeping the oil and stealing, stealing it. it from himself. And storing it somewhere. Somewhere in his backyard, yeah. So he's been convicted of not paying the taxes on the profits from selling the oil, but he's also now being tried for not selling the oil. Correct. And keeping it. <laughs> stealing it from himself. That's right. And stealing it from himself. And he's laughing. And No, they have fun with this one because now this, is, this becomes a stage set for a wonderful national show to show how completely corrupt and bankrupt is the system of justice in Russia. That it's just, uh, this, so this is a show televised. show. televised. There was footage. There was footage, footage. That, that, okay. that 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 we obtained from it, and um, but they aren't showing this on TV. No, they're not showing him laughing at the trial. I mean, it's not like everything was in complete lockdown because mm -hmm. there were huge demonstrations outside the court. You know, because remember, a lot of people, from a popular perspective, a lot of people didn't like Khodorkovsky. You know, he was pretty ruthless, and you know, in order to make his oil company more efficient. He laid off tens of thousands of people. And most people saw him as this ruthless oligarch while everybody else, you know, who had a lot, billions of dollars while everyone else was starving. So he was not very popular. But things change in this second trial where suddenly they see him as the victim. He's standing up against the power and he's speaking truth to it and mocking it. And I think um, by then, people sort of got the message, and a lot of people rally behind him. Suddenly, he becomes he a, goes, hero. a hero. He becomes a hero, but at a great price to yes. him, which is that they put him on a train. He's convicted. Right. They put him on a train, and it's seven days. He knows it's seven days because he has seven lunchboxes. That's right. So he, he can count, count the days of the trip by the number of lunchboxes he gets. Yeah. So he's got, he gets one meal a day. Right. It's in the lunchbox. I didn't. You don't, in the doc, say what's in the lunchbox. No. I How didn't. was it? Was it any good? Not very good. And you can imagine, I mean, for them to... Uh, last seven Last days. seven days. It wasn't like, you know... Beef jerky. Like, like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it wasn't like a hot hamburger. <laughs> yeah, or a nice Italian sub. No. 
Okay, so now, I mean, this is such a price. He goes to the Siberia, seven days of train ride away. It's a huge friggin' country. Yes. I mean, that is an enormous country. So thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away from home. Yep. From his wife and kids. Yep. Now, the price he's paying, they're also paying. Yep. I mean, it, it took them, if they didn't have to go all the way by train, but it took them four days to get to him. When they went out to visit him, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was brutal. And he was there for seven years, and then they, then they try him again? They do. Extend. They try him again in this second, in this second trial where they're... And, and I think the subtext of that second trial, because he was about to come up for parole. It's like, well, we don't want to let this guy out, so let's try him again. And uh, they put him back. And I think Khodakovsky, when he goes back that second time, probably figured he was going to be there for the rest of his life. And he talks philosophically about learning stuff there, <laughs> which I guess is you're going to learn stuff or just go crazy. Yeah, he becomes, he starts to become a thinker and, and a writer. He starts to examine his own life. You know, it could go a bunch of different ways. I, I've, I've done stories about a lot of rich and powerful people, and very often when things go badly for them, they descend into self-pity. That's one option. The other option is to look at yourself and say, hmm, what about who I am and, and, and what I've done was wrong, and how can I reinvent myself? And I think Khodakovsky was more in that zone. You know, he began to say things like, I'm not an ideal man, but I'm a man of ideals. In the interim, I mean, he's done a number of hunger strikes in order yeah, well, to let he, other, there, get other people out. There were a number of people in his company who were being treated very badly, including one guy who had HIV, and they weren't giving him any medical attention. So Hodakovsky goes on a dry hunger strike. Now, what's a dry hunger strike? No food, no water. And that means your blood pressure soars very quickly so that you can die within about three days. And he does that in order to be able to get this guy medical attention. Now, by then, he would soon die quickly thereafter but um, because he now had full-blown AIDS. But, um, but he got him out of a prison into a hospital situation this where at least he's being so cared for. This is so ugly. Yeah. Finally gets out, right? They... Why, why did they let him out? Why is Putin well, do this? Well, there's a lot of international pressure now because mm -hmm. Khodorkovsky now has become quite a famous dissident. So a lot of people are pressuring Putin to let him out. And uh, now the Sochi Olympics are coming up. And so uh, he wants to make a big showing internationally. We're, we're really good uh, here in Russia. Yeah. We're letting this guy out after eight, nine years in... Ten years. Ten years in a prison for really not doing anything and i'm such a good guy because we're having the olympics and then you can celebrate how good we are because exactly. they let this guy out they let him out they let Jesus. him and pussy riot out the same day they pussy didn't riot pussy riot yeah okay they, they didn't tell hodakovsky but he's in prison and he happens to be watching tv and he sees putin make an offhand comment oh yeah we're gonna let hodakovsky out and then the next thing he knows he's on his way to berlin 2013 and his family meets him in berlin his or? mother meets him his mother is dying mm -hmm. um oh that's why he said it was a humanitarian thing well and so he could be with his mother that's right that's one of the things that putin says about why he let him out and and it's possible that Such there's a, a certain sweetheart yeah there's a certain amount of sentimentality there this is the kind of guy trump likes 
Yes. Oh, I, I think there's no question about it. I mean, that was, we didn't really anticipate that when doing the story, but you begin to see a lot of eerie parallels. We're going to take a break for a moment. We'll be right back. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing Accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Right now, we're in, we're in a, a point in time where he was acquitted in the impeachment, and I guess according to... Uh, Susan Collins, he's really taken that lesson. very seriously mm-hmm. and uh, knows that he can't, you know, he's got, a, he's learned his lesson. And so uh, now he's. <laughs> I think he learned a different kind of a lesson. I think so. And and so now he is riding roughshod on his Department of Justice and basically very, very, very publicly saying, okay, we're just going to put our thumbs on the scale and help our friends and go and after our enemies. enemies. That's right. And that's exactly what Putin does. And that's exactly once you have abandoned the rule of law, once you're going down that road, you're not far from this road at all. That's that's and that's what's scary. Yep. Uh, this is such a cautionary tale that there was a possibility there that the former Soviet Union would go through the throes you have to go through and end up a democracy and end up um, you know, a country that we could deal with, uh, but it didn't. Well, now, here's another interesting parallel with the Citizen K thing, which I didn't really expect when I went to Russia. You know, outside the big cities, Putin is actually very popular. He is like Trump in in the sense that he's a good politician. He understands how to manipulate people's emotions. 
in a very powerful way to give them a sense of pride in country, some abstract notion of country, make Russia great again, make America great again. Also focus on the enemies outside. They're bad people out there. We've got to keep them out. Well, I mean, uh, invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Taking over Crimea. That's right. It's, it's basically saying, I, I, I think he's saying, it's uh, we're back. We're back as a superpower, That's right. even though you know their their economy is pretty much in shambles. Their economy is in shambles. It's kind of like a banana republic in the sense that it's built around natural resources, not uh, tech. So they've got oil, they've got natural gas, um, but that only takes you so far. So you know, during Putin was enormously helped when he took over by the fact that oil prices suddenly started soaring. They just went through the roof, and a lot of money flooded into Russia as a result, so everybody gave him credit, uh, as people often do uh, to chief executives for economic stuff that they have nothing to do with. Um, but yeah, Russia's weak, and I think that uh, you know all of that uh, interference in the 2016 election was a way of trying to both talk to his own domestic audience to say, see how strong we are, and also by supporting Trump to make America as weak as possible because he knew that Trump would eviscerate that which makes us strong, which is these democratic and he, norms. And he, and, and he wins either way, even if Hillary wins. Correct. Uh, he is, uh, he, you know, that Trump would have said it was illegitimate. And they were in the voting machines. And I think the intent of being in the voting machines was not to swing votes, but to cast doubt on Hillary's victory, which is what Putin thought was going to happen. Everybody thought that's what was going to happen. The frustrating part about this is people saying, well, you know, the Russians will be back. The Russians never left. Right. The Russians haven't left. No. <laughs> First of all, they don't have to be here. And then you have Mitch McConnell. The reason he's called Moscow Mitch. The grave digger of democracy. Is that he would not uh, fund election security well they came to him i mean the intelligence agencies oh you're talking about before the election before the election 16 yeah and he said that um he wouldn't he wouldn't make a public announcement that russia is interfering because at that point he had decided the end justifies the means you know the russians might help us win so we're not going to say anything about russian interference he had completely gone to a place where sort of that nascar place where if you ain't cheating you ain't trying yeah, we had Howard Feynman talk about the cynical person who was Mitch McConnell, and um, you know he. <laughs> where do you go? You go Merrick Garland. That's right. All, that's kind of all you need to know. Well, but... and there's another instance where you're kind of undermining norms. You know, undermining these rules um, that are so important because succession is important. That it's an honest process. Well, that's that's seems to be something that Bill Maher, for example, is focused on, which is what happens if Trump loses the election, will he leave? Right. And how does that transition work? And, you know, who are the Joint Chiefs at that point? That's right. I mean, he's he's making us ask questions that we never thought we'd even be thinking about asking. But he learned his lesson from the uh, from the trial, from the impeachment. Yeah, and the lesson was, I can get away with it. The more power I take to myself and the more I bend the rule of law to my will, the more power I get. And and evidently, the higher my poll ratings get. He's almost at 
Yeah. Which is, he's never, never been there. He's learned his lesson. You know, he, he, he said after she said, well, you know, after this, he's going to tone it down because he, he'll have learned his lesson. He said the next day, no, I didn't. Right. <laughs> he just said no. Right. There was no it's amazing that it was the perfect... able, he's able to, th- the, the way he's able to throw shade on these people like Barr and Collins who are trying to give him a veneer of legitimacy. The and point is, is that. He said, I don't need that legitimacy. I'm just taking it. So the point is, is that she says, I'm going to vote to acquit. The next day, he said, what I did was perfect. The next day is the vote. That's right. So what you do then is go, well, okay, I guess you didn't learn anything. I'll vote to convict. Because you didn't learn anything. Right. That's pretty simple. But that's just, I mean, Susan Collins, it's just more kabuki, just like with the Kavanaugh hearings. It's like, well, I'm very concerned. You know, not so much. Oh, yeah. It's um, the presumption of innocence. It's just they see... (laughs) That's what she said on him. (laughs) They see the power, and all they can see is the power, whether it be Collins or Mitch McConnell. So they rally around Trump because um, they think it's going to be good for them. The end justifies the means. That's where we've got to, where nothing else matters. The principles don't matter at all anymore and and trump is taking us there which is very much like um putin putin in russia where and and it's interesting because you know one of the things that i discovered and part of it is in the film is they go through this process um now every six years called election theater where they pretend that this is going to be a real election nobody believes it's going to be a real election and putin is always going to be elected you you show a debate yeah it's hilarious hilarious debate debate where this one woman uh ksenia subchak who is uh the daughter of putin's former uh, boss in saint petersburg the mayor of saint petersburg throwing water at another candidate uh, because they can't get anyone serious to no, run they, they, because they'll get killed. <laughs> well, they have, the, Putin doesn't appear in the debate. He doesn't need to because everybody knows he's going to win. And the other key opposition figure, this guy named Alexei Navalny, uh, who might pose a threat to him, you know, is le- legally prohibited from running. <laughs> and they have the rest of the people on there in this sort of stage set pretending to engage in the process of democracy. And it it, it is like a clown show. It's a clown show, yeah. And um, it, it is, you, you you cut to it before you say exactly what it is. Right. And you're going like, what the hell is this? Right. And uh, then you learn what it is. And you go, oh, no. Oh, well, this is terrible. And the fact that we're talking about this now, in the way that we're talking about it, that, you know, it, immediately after the acquittal, he, you know, he's he's a, he's pathological. Yeah, and so all this is about is punishing the people who put him through this. You know, he's doing that now. Imagine if he gets reelected. Exactly. The other thing we haven't talked about, which is a similarity between what goes on in Putin's Russia and Trump's uh, America, is this kind of post-truth phenomenon. And there's a, a, a oh, that's a, huge. That's a huge. And there's a there's a moment in the in Citizen K where they're they have an interview with these two guys who went to England to kill the Skripals with Novichok, that uh, nerve agent, and they're saying on television, you know, well, we just went there um, to look at the spires of the Salisbury Cathedral. 
They're beautiful. Uh, they're beautiful. <laughs> we went there very quickly, and we how, came how back could you? very quickly after the Novichok was it was administered. But the great thing about it, or the terrifying thing about it, is that everybody knows they're lying, and the idea is that we know that you know that we're lying, but we're going to lie to you anyway because we can. And isn't that the joke? And that's kind and of. I kind of admire that because here's <laughs> someone who is willing uh, to let us know that they're lying in order to make uh, us great again. Right. So that's the point where you have a, a, you know, now we have our post truth president who can say whatever comes into his head. The phone call was perfect. I won the popular vote. <laughs> whatever it is, they're not even lies anymore. It's just fictions that he makes real because he can and if he gets elected it will be so you know like even, even even a month ago i would not be going would be this alarmed i would not be i would not be saying you know what trump's turning us into an autocracy or maybe i did <laughs> but not to the degree and and you see this film and you go like wow this is ugly i feel like we're going to turn into something unrecognizable that this is not what the founding fathers did as bad as we've been as a country in many many ways th this is this is like 180 degrees different over and over again you could look at the moments where we don't realize our ideals but we had ideals trump is saying forget the ideals fuck them you know those that's over there's only one thing that matters that's the bottom line and um that's the scary part the, the point about your documentary citizen k is to me is that it was in the balance soviet union fell there was you know gorbachev handing it off to yeltsin there was a moment there even though they didn't know how to do capitalism and there were a lot of, and it was corrupt as it was. and But there was a moment there where they could have become a democracy and stumbled along and become a capitalist country, a free market country with, you know, Social Security and <laughs> Medicare. <laughs> they could have, you know, joined the Western nations. And it was precarious, and they went the wrong way. They did. And we're at a precarious moment. And what we're running against, what Democrats are running against, is a very frightening thing. No, he's the wrecking ball. He's determined cynically to destroy all of the institutions that um, keep us from becoming. Khodorkovsky goes to prison for 10 years. Yep because of the system of justice is not a system of justice. No, it's a system of revenge. It's a system of punishing your enemies. And that's exactly what he's talking And if he wins re-election and has four years right. as president? Okay, dirty money. I mean, I saw, you know what was a fascinating one was the uh, Volkswagen. Yeah, I was in that one. Yeah. That was amazing. Netflix has a series of your documentaries, some of which you 
uh, made and some of which yeah in the uh, season one I, I did the one on Volkswagen and then but it, then there were five other directors who did their thing we did one on Trump actually just called Confidence Man all about his business and what a bad businessman he is and in season two you know the six more directors take on various things uh, there's Jared Kushner um, I can't wait to see yeah that that's that's a good one but uh, yeah, on on the Volkswagen one, it was amazing. So they they kept saying that they had created a diesel engine that didn't have the emissions. They, they had a cheating device. So basically, mm-hmm. what happened was, <laughs> you would put the car on the blocks whenever it was going to the testing station, and they would apply the cheating device, which did indeed cut out a lot of this NOx emission that would come out of the diesel car. Um, but as soon as you got on the road, it, 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 they engineered it so as soon as you move the wheel, which you don't have to do when it's on the testing blocks, as soon as you move the wheel, it canceled the anti-pollution device. You know, my daughter grew up in Los Angeles when we were living there back then, and she developed, because of the NOx pollution, you know, um, rather severe asthma. And I remember seeing her faint in front of me uh, when she was playing soccer because it, it was that bad. That's from... You know, diesel pollution. That's where. Yeah, it, that's what it comes from. Used to fly in L.A. and it was just you could not see the ground. That's right. But what's staggering in the Volkswagen case was how often they just bald face lied to the regulators. Are they? It, did the CEO go to prison? He hasn't gone to prison, but finally he's been indicted. So that's a good thing. They've worked their way up the chain. But the U.S. put a number of execs, a number of VW execs in prison, the ones they could get their hands on. One of them made the mistake of flying through Miami, and they picked him up. Okay, so so finally the CEO is going is on trial, or he's indicted. Right. Man, oh, man. I mean, what has he said? What has he said? What do you say when you get caught like that? What does he say? I, I mean, I don't know. Don't speak German. Boy, you have certainly met your share of sleazebags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's part of your job. That's part of my job, yeah. You just put on the hazmat suit and you go out and get it done. Did you ever get to do one about, like, um, somebody who's done something really great? Interesting idea. Um <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking. Cleanse your palate. I'm looking. No, no. I, I actually, I actually made that. A, you know, uh, we just did this film on the Innocence Project. Oh, well, they're doing. They're a doing hell of a lot of good. Great stuff. Overcoming and, really evil. Indeed, and yeah. and it was fun to do something about a hero. You know, there was this heroic defense team that took this poor kid. He's not a kid anymore, but he spent 24 years in prison for a crime he did not commit, and. Uh, they dug into his case and they got him out. And um, and there is a district attorney now in Philadelphia who's doing a wonderful job of actually using the power of that office to investigate um, prior convictions to see if anybody was wrongfully convicted. Because, imagine this, he wants everybody to believe that they got the right guy, not the wrong guy. And then they want to go get the bad guys who really did the the bad deeds and put them in prison instead of the wrong person. They Which want is the what truth. A prosecutor is supposed be, to be doing. Supposed That's to be right. Doing and but it was it, it had become too many prosecutors. Just about winning. Just about notching your belt. 
Yeah. And this office now is dedicated to the idea of the truth. Once again, we're getting into talking about justice. Right. And as at the core of democracy and as at the core of our society and what makes our country work and many times hasn't worked in the past. Correct. And continues to not work in for many people. But um this is a cautionary tale, Citizen K. Thank you for this, all the work that you've done over the years, as you know, one of the the documentarians who opens our eyes to human nature and uh, corruption. And let's just see the bad guys, but I want to see the I want to see the uh, good guys at the end. I'm with you. I, I like that idea. I, I, I'm more and more invested in the good guys, the heroes. Okay. All right. Thank you, uh, Al. Thank you. Alex Gibney uh, has been with me. And you can go to Netflix and see Dirty Money, and I've watched a number of those. And it's a, it's a series that you were executive producer of, but you also did the one on, on Volkswagen. That's right. And the new season is starts on March 11th. With Kushner? With Kushner. Yeah, that's show number one. <laughs> well, I'm going to catch that. March 11th on Netflix. That's right. Well, keep up the good work, man. Thank you, Al. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. 
It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.